Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So once more, welcome to this Bible study. Before we start the study, there's been a couple of questions that came up during our question-answer period I'd like to address uh, tonight before I start because I believe they have, uh, they're, they're sufficiently important and uh, you may have uh, seen them, you may have come across them. The first one has to do with the, um, the book, um, the Da Vinci Code, or... Uh, yeah, I think that's what it's called. You've all heard about this book, and there's been a number of people asking me questions about this book, about Opus Dei, about what is in the book, and how you know how do we respond back. Um, there is now um, a website that has been put out by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and that website is called www. Okay. Uh, after you said that a couple of thousand times, you will reduce it to dub dub dub. Um, dot jesusdecoded.com. Jesus decoded one word. Jesus d e c o d e d dot com, and it's a rebuttal to the book, and it's very 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 well done. How many of you have seen this site so far? Okay, good. So um, anyhow, there, there were so many there's so many errors in this book, and so many fallacies they're way too long for me to expose or to talk about go to that site covers all of them which yeah but that suit is over folks who said that he actually stole our ideas so if I were them I just keep quiet but they're making a movie out of that I have no intention of going to see the movie and I would recommend that you do not see the movie either um, that would be my recommendation to you now that's all I'm going to say about this. It's all in that website if you care to go and then spend time over this. Another question that came up had to do over the expression in the consecration, the word of consecration, over the, when, when, when Christ spoke of consecration, did he say died for all or did he say died for many? And some of you may not even be aware of the controversy around this. Others are very well aware of this. The point that I made last week was that uh, even though in our Maronite liturgy you will see that in the Word of Consecration the, the, the text says very clearly, Christ died for many. It is nonetheless the truth that he actually died for all. And the reason why we can say many, because we are of Aramaic background, and in Aramaic many can mean also all, as in actually French, beaucoup means many, but also means so many that it's all. All right, this is not peculiar to Aramaic. Um, I'm going to give you a couple of references over this. The reason why it's important is because, oddly enough, those who defend this position, the position that Christ died for many, go back to the old Latin Mass, where in Latin it is stated many, just as it is in in uh, in our liturgy, oddly enough, when and and, and and their intent is effectively to defend the you know the catholicity of the mass and uh, and defend against the abuse that we see in in the uh, Novus Ordo Mass, which is the current Latin liturgy. But in doing so, they actually tend to espouse Calvinistic positions. 
they actually, trying to defend the Catholic Church from Protestant influences, they end up in the Protestant camp. Why? Because when we say that Christ died for many, not for all, we are espousing what is called the doctrine of limited atonement, which is exactly what Calvin espoused. Right? The doctrine of limited atonement. Now, how, do we, how can we say that actually Christ died for all? A couple of... Um, Sites, I'm going to give you a website, which my guardian angel was uh, merciful enough to guide me to. This, answer, this question is answered beautifully there. I'm going to give you also reference to a book, for those of you who are interested. The title of the book is In Defense of the Mass of Pope Paul VI. In Defense of the Mass of Pope Paul VI. And, no, not, no, sorry, this is, not, this is another piece. Hold on a second. Let me get you the book. The book is called The Pope, the Council, and the Mass. It's written by Jim Likudis and Kenneth... Kenneth Whitehead, interestingly enough, both I, Whitehead for sure is a convert. I don't know about Likudis, I suspect he's a convert as well. So uh, the title of the book is The Pope, the Council, and the Mass, and they go and you know, they cover all the details you want to ever have covered over this issue. Tonight I'll just give you a couple of references for your uh, benefit, starting from Scripture. In uh, the first letter of John, chapter 2, verse 2, we read that he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In, uh, in 2 Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, we read, And he died for all, that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Likewise, in 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, uh, who desired all men to be saved. And uh, a little bit later, verse 6, who gave himself as ransom for all, the testimony to which was born at the proper time. Uh, in 4.10, St. Paul writes that God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. There are other texts as well in 2 Peter 3.9, John 3.16, Acts 17.28, too many to enumerate. Furthermore, the Council of Trent states, and that's a defide, which means that something all, Catholic, all Catholics must believe. So one of these days I'll walk you through some of those dogmatic constitution of the Catholic Church, which all Catholics must be familiar with and must believe. All right? That's one of them. In the Council of Trent, it is stated in... Um, uh, in session 6 on justification, chapter 2, it's actually in response to the Calvinist. You see, Calvin, not all Christians are, are alike. You need to be aware of this. The whole notion that you know, Christianity is, the church is made of all the body believers is nonsense. Makes no sense. Right? Because we don't believe the same thing. Some Protestants believe that baptism is necessary. Others believe baptism is not necessary. Right? That's one example. There are many others. But Calvin in particular taught that when, I'm, I'm, I'm boiling it down, it's more complicated, but essentially when God creates a human being, he takes a stamp, and God has two stamps, two rubber stamps. One says hell, the other one says heaven. And he stamps the soul with that statement, hell or heaven. That's it. If you follow that to its proper logic, you'll understand why many Protestants will say there's no purposeful work. What's the purpose of work? You can't do nothing. You can't add nothing. So that notion is that from the beginning, God had in mind that only a smaller group of people will be saved. That's called limited atonement. All right? In response to that, the Council of Trent states unequivocally in that um, chapter 2, and I'm reading from Denzinger, paragraph 794. Denzinger is a reference or the reference when it comes to those councils. And that all men might receive the adoption of sons, him God has proposed as propriator through faith in his blood for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for those of the whole world. That's stated verbatim in the Council of Trent. Um, Pope Clement VI, who was fighting the Jansenists, basically said the same thing in his uh, Bull of Jubilee. Uni genitus Dei Filius, as well as, um, and he was writing before the Council of Trent even. And then also you have, you also have Pope Clement the Ninth, 
uh, affirm that the position of Jansen, because Jansen, who's the father of the Jansenist movement, affirmed what I just told you. Christ died only for a subgroup. And Pope Clement X, the nine, sorry, Pope Clement XI um, wrote that, but the sense of that book of Jansen, which has been condemned in the five propositions, whose meaning the words of those propositions express clearly, must be rejected and condemned as heretical by all the faithful of Christ, not only by word of mouth, but also in heart. Right, condemning that position. And last thing I'll give as a pointer to you folks, you are familiar with, uh, with the chapter of Divine Mercy, aren't you? Alright, how do we pray it? For the sake of his sorrowful passion, have mercy, alright? Christ died for all, not for some. If you have questions over this, we can take them up in a, a question-answer period. Now, you, I don't usually do that stuff for two reasons. Number one, there are folks out there who are very good at it, much better than I am. And uh, um, in, in particular, Catholic Answers, they're excellent at what they do, apologetics. They do it very well. And number two, I consider that it's far more important or simpler for me to state, to, to start with one very simple basic axiom. The church is always right. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in the church and the Holy Spirit is the soul of the church and the Holy Spirit will not allow the church to go wrong in two fundamental matters. Theology and morality. And closely associated the liturgy. The Holy Spirit will not allow the church to create a false liturgy. I am not talking about the pastoral aspect. I'm not talking about applying this. And that, well, yeah, you can have a lot of abuse going on. But in terms of teaching, the Holy Spirit will never allow the church to err. Therefore, Vatican II is a council and the dogmatic constitution of the Church of Vatican II must be believed and accepted by all those who call themselves Catholic. Now the application, quote-unquote, of Vatican II, now that's a different story. Alright? I take that as an axiom and now I busy myself with which, with, with which I consider to be the most important task of Catholics, becoming saints. That's the position I take here. Now, I'll address apologetic issues as they come lightly, but I don't focus on them as much as you would find in other places. Because my focus here is understanding Scripture so we can get to, in a face-to-face in -face with Christ in His church. You understand? I always welcome all your questions. Just understand my perspective so you know where I'm coming from. But anytime you come up with those questions, I'll find you the answers. But it's not the focus of what, what we do here. Alright, I think I've covered most I wanted to cover outside of this. So let's go on now with, a, with the next segment in our study of the book of Revelation, which is the book of Daniel. Remember that we saw last time the book of Isaiah. We come, kind of floated over the book of Isaiah in three sessions. And I, I you know, if you're dissatisfied from what we've done last, for the past three lectures, you have every right to be so because... Uh, you know, unless you have an absolute perfect mastery of the book of Isaiah, very difficult to do it in three lectures, and I do not claim to have such a mastery. However, I think you, 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 you got at least the notion that God will use political events to advance the cause of the church for his glory and for the benefit of the church. That politics and Theology are intertwined. That God expresses His will, as Saint Jose Maria Escriva, the founder of um, of um, Opus Dei, would say, in the normal daily affairs of men. And the more you advance in your faith, the more you move away from trying to seek the extraordinary out of the ordinary, and seeking more and more the extraordinary in the ordinary where every little ordinary thing becomes extraordinary because it is the ex expression of God's love. The, the work of... The Holy Spirit works through politics, through governments, through kingdoms, through war, through peace, to advance God's glory and the, the, the church. 
If you can hold on to this notion, then you can live in peace. You can live in peace to the extent that you know God, and to the extent that you love God, and to the extent that you serve God. Not know God, partially serve Him, and partially love Him. Our, our, our problems, our, our issues, our concerns, often come from love of self, not so much love of God. And we saw also in the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, how God chastises the, the, the kingdom of Israel first, then the kingdom of Judah, then he destroys Jerusalem, the temple, and ships them all in exile. Now, perspective, 10,000 feet. Where were they before the kingdom was formed? In exile, in Egypt, remember? They were brought out of Egypt into the promised land, even though God knew, and we read that when we covered Exodus, that they will not be able to keep the promise, and then He will have to send them back into exile. And He does. He does. They're back into exile. And they stay into exile until pretty much the coming of Christ, where they come back again to the promised land for a very brief period of time. Right after that, in 70 AD, the temple is destroyed one more time, and this time, two things happen. The Word of God fans out into the world, the church is born, and the Jewish people is again in exile until modern time where the, the state of Israel has been formed one more time. Now, it is kind of interesting for us to see that the state of Israel has been formed because when we look at the state of Israel today, it is so far away from anything the, the prophets have taught. It is not a particularly religious state. It is basically atheistic for the most part. If not in, in their expression of faith, in their morality, abortion is rampant. They have pretty much one kid per family. But we see this as a, an interesting sign because we know from Paul that the end of the world will not come before the conversion of the Jews. One of the signs of the end of the world is, one of the sure signs of the end of the world, except unless the fake ones that we, we, we hear of all the time, is the mass conversion of the Jews. They have to convert massively. They have to become Catholic massively before we can speak of the end of time. And we are, I would say, maybe a thousand years away from that, at the rate at which things are going. Alright? This is not a prophecy, this is just a you know, imperfect human estimation, empirically based on what we see today. That's all. Alright? I'm just giving you this kind of very parabolic picture to, for you to keep in mind that God is active, God is working in, in, in history all the time, including the events of our time. And not to despair, and not to give up, and not to become bitter, and not to start pointing fingers at this and that, but to actually be encouraged and empowered to spread the word. In the book of Daniel, if you remember this chronology that we looked at, we're now pretty much in exile. Daniel lives in exile. He's a prophet of the exilic period. He lives first under the Babylonian regime, then the Persian, the, the Medo-Persian regime, and then the Persian regime. And there's some very interesting thing we're going to see with Daniel as they relate to the book of Revelation, of course. And here I am going to be following pretty closely a commentary put together by St. Jerome on the book of Daniel. What we're going to do tonight is go over, hopefully, chapter 1 through 7 or 6, and then the next lecture will cover 7 through 14. Let me give you a bird's eye view of the book of Daniel. The first six chapters are historical, meaning we go, we walk through a number of kingdoms and what happens to Daniel, but also on a moral level, on a moral reading, they are formative. They show us how God is actually forming Daniel for the great prophecies he's going to give him, the great visions he's going to get. He's going to get. Then 7 through 14 are visionary, prophetic, and apocalyptic. And there we're going to see many, many similar images between Daniel and the book of St. John. So in chapter 1, we find Daniel in Babylon, 
And the king has decreed that he wanted his head eunuch to find youth from Judea who are without blemish. He wanted them to be instructed in the language and the art of the Babylonian kingdom and then be presented to him. And that is going, and so in, within, in, for the next three years, Daniel and some of his companions will be studying. Then, in chapter 2, we see the first instance where God's wisdom is manifested for Daniel because the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a, a dream and he wants someone to tell him what the dream is and to explain it to him. In chapter 3, so going back to chapter 1, Daniel and his companion have a first test of faith and it has to do with food. In the third chapter, they have a second test of faith which has to do with fire. And then in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a second dream um, and its meaning and its realization takes place. And in chapter 5, Belshazzar, who is another Babylonian kingdom, is using the gold and silver of the temple and then a finger appears in, with writing on the wall. And we'll go through the explanation of this and its meaning and, and, and its implication. In chapter 6, Darius and Cyrus, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, basically take over and, and Darius become a king and Daniel goes to his third test of faith where he's thrown to the lions. Those are the first six chapters as an outline. In chapter 7 the vision begun, be, become, now, be, begun, began. Whoa. Now, this is not a chrono, chrono, this, the, it's not a chronological order. It's, the, the first six chapters are a long, wide sweep through history, and then in chapter 7, we're going to go back to Daniel's youth. Alright? The, the way the, 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 the book of Daniel has been arranged was not with chronology in mind. Chronology seems to be the only way we write things around here these days. This happened, and that happened, and this happened, and that happened, just go chronologically. Well, they didn't do it this way back then. They decided to focus on some other axis, other dimension. So, in chapter 7, Daniel has a vision. In chapter 8, he has a second vision. In chapter 9, he, has, he prays and intercedes for an explanation to be provided. In chapter 10, 11, and 12, there is a very important revelation that is given to Daniel by Gabriel the Archangel. In chapter 13 and 14, there are actually two if you will, so, so effectively the, the apocalyptic piece ends with chapter 12 and 13 or 14 are more applications on Daniel's part. One is in the case of Susanna, a woman who was unjustly accused of betraying her husband and chapter 14 is about um, the king Bel, a dragon and Daniel. How many of you knew that the Bible actually spoke of dragons? All right. That's basically an outline what the book consists of. And of course, we want to focus quite a bit on chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, because that's where we see the images of Revelation appearing. And when we see how they're used in this book, we'll, we'll, be, better, uh, we'll be better prepared to understand them when we look at, the, at them in John. So, chapter 1, four youth from Judea are chosen. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael or Michael and Azariah and their names were changed to Belteshazzar to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego now when they were prepared they were supposed to sit at the, ta at the king's table and eat his food what is the problem? what would be the problem for Judean to sit at the table of the king? unclean they would defile themselves according to the law of Moses. So Daniel asked um, Ashpenaz, his chief chamberlain, Daniel told him, I'm afraid of my lord the king, it is he who allotted your food. No, Ash yeah. 
Daniel was not was resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or wine, so he begged the chief chamberlain to spare him the defilement. But Ashpenaz said, "Well, this is going to get me in trouble. If you sit at his table and you don't eat, the king eventually is going to notice that you're you're not healthy, and then my head is on the line." So Daniel said, "All right, let us eat only vegetables." And if in 10 days you see that we're not healthy, fine, do whatever you want. And then after 10 days, they looked healthier and better fed than any of the young men who ate from the royal table. So the steward continued to take away the food and wine they were, they were to receive and gave them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and prof proficiency in all literature and science, and to Daniel, the understanding of all visions and dreams. So what does that prove? That proves that a vegetarian diet is better for you, right? No. No. I have nothing in particular against a vegetarian diet. I think it's a great diet. Uh, St. Teresa of Avila decided never to eat meat. She gave it up. And uh, many other saints did the same. St. Charbon, for instance, uh, as a hermit, would eat only once a day and would only have a bowl of soup. And that was it. Uh, and many Indians, for instance, today have a vegetarian diet and they are healthy, so there's absolutely no problem. But that's not the point. The point is that they decided to stand by God's word. God said, you will not defile yourselves. They decided that that would be the thing they will hang on to. They will not give it up. And the rest of it, the rest of the situation will take care of itself. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be given unto you. Sort of like, for instance, today people will tell you, especially people who are really mindful about their health, and it's good to be mindful about our health up to a certain point, that if you don't eat regularly, your body is going to notice that, and then you're going to lose weight eventually, but then after that you're going to pack a lot more, more pounds. So then, if that's the case, and if, let's say, in the Maronite tradition, fasting means not eating from midnight to noon, well, clearly we have a problem here because it's going to affect my health. So how can I fast? And so they don't. Forgoing so many spiritual benefits that come from fasting, such as a great a greater awareness of the presence of the garden angel, a greater love of the cross, a greater purity of thoughts for a worldly benefit, not thinking that God could take care of their blood pressure just as he could take care of everything else. Another, another example where this is very interesting, very striking to me, is that many Catholics, when they go to a restaurant or at work and they sit down to eat, will not will not give glory to God. They eat like pagans. They will not sign themselves to the sign of the cross. They will not ask God to bless them and to bless the food. They will just eat like everybody else. Why? Well, of course we can do that. We're in public. Really? Since when God said, we, when we're in public, you don't give me glory? As a matter of fact, most of the time, because they don't do it in public, they don't do it at home. And when they have kids, the kids don't see them doing it. And how would the kids, and the kids catch up on what's really important? They catch up on what's really important, very quickly. Mom and dad is not, are not setting themselves up when they're in public and everybody's seeing them. Then this whole thing about faith is not really important. Yeah, it's nice to have in the back pocket, but it's not really important. Daniel and his companion did not think this way. They put their heads on the line. And God gave them wisdom. God gave them wisdom. Chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. So he ordered the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers to be summoned to interpret the dream for him. But then, the guy is shrewd. He's smart. He says, alright, I'm not going to tell you what my dream is. You're going to tell me what my dream is. And then you're going to explain it to me. Why? Because he knows human nature. I mean, he didn't become a king because he was naive, right? He knows human nature. I tell you something, he came up with an explanation. Right? 
And they tell him, well, there's not a man on, on, on the face of this earth that can actually do that. And effectively confessing to the fact that we do not have the ability to read someone's mind or to see the future or to telepathically understand what someone is saying. Those things don't exist. We don't have them. We're not able to do that. Notice that when he summoned them, the four Judean were not among them. Why? St. Jerome says, presumably because the other guys shut them out. Let them want to be there. Right? We're the ones who are going to be able to do the stuff. We're the head honchos here. Who are these four foreigners to come and tell us stuff? Keep them out. The king said, alright, I have a deal for you. If you can tell me what my dream is and explain it to me, I'll cover you with gold. If you can't, I'll cut off your head and your family's head. Oh well, now that's the case, the matter was made known to Daniel. So Daniel finds out that this is what's going on. And he tells the head, um, the, he tells Ashpenaz, tell the king to give us a couple of days. And what does he do? He goes and he asks his three companions to pray with him. Now notice the humility of Daniel. God gave him wisdom and understanding to, to explain dreams. Yet he does not, he does not depend on himself. He asks his friend to pray. And they do. And they pray. And then he goes before the king and he says, in verse 19, chapter 2, during the night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision and he blessed the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and power are His. He causes the changes of times and seasons, makes kings and unmakes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. Notice, makes kings and unmakes them. Daniel professes and, and declares that God is always in control of kingdoms. He brings up a king, he takes him away. He reveals deep and hidden things and knows what is in the darkness, for the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise because you have given me wisdom and power. Now you have shown me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's dream. So Daniel went to Arioch, who, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not put the wise men of Babylon to death. Bring me before the king, and I will tell him the interpretation of the dream. Arioch quickly brought Daniel to the king and said, I have found a man among the Judean captains who can give this interpretation to the king. <laughs> you know this is the psychology? Right? If you have a manager, you're working for the manager, you do something good, who gets the bonus? The manager. Right? You mess up. You get fired. What comes around? What goes around comes around. In fact, if you understand this principle, it is very easy for you to test the metal of a man by hearing him ascribe stuff to himself. There's nothing that reveals our vanity and our obsession with our own self-image than when we start saying, I did this, and I did that, and this and that and the other, and I this and I that. Nothing reveals a man, as nothing puts light on his interior makeup than when you start hearing him talking this way. This is, by the way, a sin that is particularly strong among the male portion of the population. Women don't tend to be affected by it as much. They have other problems like gossiping and other things. But that sort of stuff, standing there cockily and declaring to the whole world that I did this and I did that, Pray for these people because uh, it is actually grievous sin. It poisons the soul. Right? It's a very dangerous sin. Okay? And if you have, if you are, if you are um, afflicted by it, I recommend the litany of humility. Pray the litany of humility. You can Google it. Litany of humility. It's a beautiful prayer. So he brings them to the king and and and. Uh, the king asked Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Can you tell me the dream that I had and its meaning? In the king's presence, Daniel made this reply. The mystery about which the king has inquired, the wise men, enchanters, magicians, and astrologers could not explain to the king. Wise men, enchanters, magicians, and astrologers. Anyone doing astrology still? By the way, astrology is a sin. You're reading your, your horoscope and going by it. It could be a venial sin, it could be a mortal sin, depending on how deep you're in that stuff. 
but here you can see it, it's nonsense. Right? And he says, could not explain to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what is to happen in days to come. Notice how Daniel passes over his person. There's a God in heaven, and he's shown to the king. No mention made of himself. You notice that? No credit given to himself. What is to happen in days to come? This was the dream you saw as you lay in bed. To you, in your bed, there came thoughts about what should happen in the future. And he who reveals mysteries showed you what is to be. To me also this mystery has been revealed. Not that I am wiser than any other living person, but in order that its meaning may be made known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts in your mind. You observe Daniel's perspective. He acknowledges that the vision, the explanation has been given to him, but he says immediately, not because I'm the you know, wise guy around here, but so that I may render a pastoral service to others. Render a pastoral service to others. And th that's why those of us who are called to teach must always keep in mind, must always born, keep in mind that anything they say that is of benefit to others is given to others. And they may not take credit in it. Otherwise, they'll lose themselves. That's called pastoral graces. They're different from sanctifying graces, which are given to us in prayer, during the Mass. And we have to understand that and keep that in mind. And here's the vision. In your vision, O King, you saw a statue, very large and exceedingly bright, terrifying in appearance as it stood before you. The head was pure gold. Its, its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs bronze. The legs iron, its feet partly iron and partly tile. So it's a composite image. And we'll see in the book of Revelation many composite images. So it's not peculiar to the book of Revelation to have composite imagery. Where, for instance, you have this beast with a head of lion and legs of leopard and all that good stuff. Composite imagery is used to... Well, let's see why it's used. Why you looked at the statue, stone which was hewn from a mountain without a hand being put to it, struck its iron and tile feet, breaking them in pieces. The iron, tile, bronze, silver and gold all crumbled at once, fine as the chaff on a threshing floor in summer, and the wind blew them away without leaving a trace. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, the interpretation we shall also give in the king's presence. You, O king, are the king of kings. To you, the God of heaven has given dominion and strength, power and glory. If you reflect on this, you need to understand that even though Nebuchadnezzar was actually an evil man, but would not, not even think twice, putting a whole bunch of people to death, God gave him all that. And you should not be shocked when you see men in power or kingdom growing when they're evil. God has a purpose. His purpose we may not see immediately, but He has a purpose. Men, wild beasts and birds of the air, wherever they may dwell, He has handed over to you, making you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom shall take your place, inferior to yours, than the third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. So the second kingdom that he's talking about is the Medo-Persian kingdom. We'll see that later. The third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, is uh, the kingdom of Alexander the Great. And then the fourth kingdom, then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. It shall break in pieces and subdue all these others, just as iron breaks in pieces and crushes everything else. The Roman kingdom. Alright? So we're moving through the kingdoms from the Babylonian to the Medo-Persian to the, to the Greek and finally the Roman kingdom. When the Roman kingdom is established and is made of iron, a rock that is hewn from the mountain but not of human hands. And St. Jerome points out that this is Christ who was born of the virgin but not of human seed. He is the rock. And that rock shall crush the fourth kingdom. And it happened in the third century when, when uh, Constantine, emperor of the Roman Empire, became Christian. 
and that rock shall grow to become a mountain, which is the Catholic Church. This is a prophecy written in about 587, right after, so about 500 years before the coming of Christ. And the toes, partly iron, partly tile, the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. The iron mixed with clay, tile means that they shall seal their alliances by intermarriage, but they shall not stay united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the lifetime of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed or delivered up to another people. Rather, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and put an end to them, and it shall stand forever. It shall stand forever. That is the Catholic Church. I ask you to go into history and look for any other institution, hierarchical institution, who has consistently taught the same thing for 2,000 years without contradicting itself. And who has held, who stayed in existence without an army, despite being attacked by Stalin and the communist regime, by Hitler, who were bent on destroying it, and who continues to exist today. Go and check your books of history. I'm not talking about an idea like Buddhism. Buddhism is an idea. When you say it's a religion, yeah, but what does it mean practically? Do all Buddhists, are all Buddhists called not to contracept? Are they all called not to have abortion? Can they have divorce? Well, it all depends. I'm not talking about Islam. Islam is a religion, but do all Muslims can Muslims divorce? Yeah. To what extent? Well, it depends. For what reason? It depends. Religion is not just about an idea, it's about morality. How you live your life. What's right, what's wrong. Those two make you a religious person. You can't have them divorced. You can't say, I believe, I'm a Catholic, and you support abortion. You can't say I'm a Catholic and you support contraception. You can't say I'm a Catholic and you support euthanasia. You can't say I'm a Catholic and you don't, you're not going to help the poor. Can't. Cannot. That's what I'm talking about. Interestingly enough, St. Jerome, when he talks about the toes and how weak they are, he actually is talking about democracy. And we could go into a whole um, long explanation about the role of democracy. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to mention it. So that is the meaning. So Nebuchadnezzar fell down and worshipped Daniel and ordered sacrifice and incense offered to him. To Daniel the king said, Truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. That is why you were able to reveal this mystery. He advanced Daniel to a high post, gave him many generals presents, made him ruler of the, of the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king made Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators of the province of Babylon. So Daniel did not forget his friends. Even though he became very high, he remembered his friends. So what do you think the book of Nasser learned? So you see, this was given so the king can learn about God's wisdom. You think the guy learned about God's wisdom. What does he do? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, he thinks about it. Hey, I'm the head of gold. All right. Cool. I'm going to build a statue which is about yeah, 180 feet high, made of pure gold, of me. And I'm going to ask everybody to come and worship me. So the whole explanation of Daniel went blip. The only thing he remembered was, I'm the head of gold. That's all he remembered. I'm the head of gold. So he makes a statue. He wants everybody to come and worship it. Of course, Daniel, who's now very close to the king, you know, he's in that high, po high position, and it must have caused him untold pain to see the king behave the way he does. But hey, he's the king. So he makes the statue, and of course, those who are jealous go tell the king. Hey, you know those four guys? Daniel, uh, you know, um, Belshazzar, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not coming and worshipping you. So the king gets really upset. He goes to them and says, why aren't you doing this? Kind of forgot. And Daniel tell him, they actually say, oh king, we'll serve you. We're here to help you. We'll do everything you want, but we only worship God. So he gets so mad, he's so enraged that they will not worship him, that he 
makes that furnace, he orders a furnace, he basically tells his people to heat it seven more times. Now, probably they didn't just you know, pull a calculator out there and start calculating. No, seven means to the extreme, to the max. And he asked his strongest men to bind them and put them in the furnace. And it was so strong that these people who were brought, bringing them to the furnace died in the process. The guy went, you know, he went nuts. He wanted them really dead. Dead, dead, dead. What happens? In the fire, Azariah stood up and prayed aloud. Blessed are you and praiseworthy, O Lord, the God of our fathers, and glorious forever is your name. I want you to stop here and think for a minute about the irony of the situation. Where is that guy standing? In the middle of a fire. Now let me answer this question. You're standing in the middle of a blazing fire. You're not dead yet. But the flames are all around you. Do you feel like you're sitting on a beach in, in, you know, in Barbados? Would you feel like that? Are you all relaxed? No. What does he do? Blessed are you. Remember the question I put to you last week? When during Mass we say, lift up your heart. We'll lift them up to the Lord. That's what it means. That in the middle of your tribulation and difficulties... And I am, I know, not because I've, I, I know all of you personally, but I know because of experience, that each and every one of you have your difficulties, your tribulation, your sorrow, your regrets, things that have happened to you or happened to loved ones. But none of that is a reason not to give glory to God. That is the lifting of the heart. Lift up your heart means that in spite of all of this, or because of it all, you will say, blessed be God. Now is that easy to do? Can you go six days without prayer, without spending time to pray by yourself, without taking the time to think about God, and asking you about an angel, and praying maybe the rosary, and asking Our Lady to help you, can you really lift up your heart? It's impossible. For you, for me, for anyone. We cannot. We cannot. So those words pr pronounced by the priest, lift up your heart, can serve as either a words of blessing on us or word of, words of condemnation. Because we are called to lift up your heart. And unless we prepare for the liturgy, for the whole week before we come, we're not going to be able to do that. You understand? That is the lifting up of the heart. It's an act of faith on our part that says, Lord, I will rejoice in you despite everything going on around me. Because only in you will I find peace. Only in you will I find peace. And I've come here to give you glory. And I've prepared myself the whole week so I can come here and give you glory. I want to say something that might be shocking to some of you. I'd say that if some of you are going to Mass every day in a sort of an autopilot mode, you do daily Mass in an autopilot fashion, and don't take time to pray by yourself and really work in the aridity and the silence of that personal prayer, I would say for, to you that it would be much better to do that until you realize your weakness and the need of Mass than to go to Mass every day not knowing what you're doing. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes the thirst of something must be there so we can really truly appreciate what we're dealing with. It's a beautiful prayer. It's in chapter 2, uh, 3. And I recommend you read it. Maybe you would read it tonight. Because here are people who are supposed to be burning and they're giving praise to God. So the king comes and sees what's going on and he again acknowledges the God of Daniel as the true God. And he says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations, our peoples of every language, wherever they dwell on earth, abundant peace. It has seemed good to me to publish the signs and wonders which the Most High God has... Therefore I decree, verse 96, For nations and peoples of every language, and whoever blasphemes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut to pieces and his house destroyed. For there is no other God who can rescue like this. And probably when he wrote those words, Daniel went, boom. Because the guy is still into the destroying and killing mode, right? He's not gotten the other part of it, right? 
And he says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures through all generations. So it is actually, is essentially Israel is foreshadowing the church here. Why? Because even though they are in exile, even though they are sent into exile, instead of the Babylonians converting them, because you need to understand, Babylon back then, we're talking New York. You understand New York? Babylon is New York. It has all the cool stuff. It has the latest gadgets. It has the best food, the best fashion, the best, you name it. Cell phones, gadgets, you know, the whole deal. So it'd be easy for Jewish youth who've been taken away from a city that's been completely destroyed to do what? Hey, in Babylon, you do like the Babylonians. You become one of them. And so Babylon, the world, would have converted Israel. Instead, with these four, they are able to convert the world, which is precisely what the church is called to do. In chapter 4, there's really an interesting, again, and another dream that, uh, that the king has. And the, the dream is, <clears throat> I saw a tree of great height at the center of the world. It was large and strong, with its top touching the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. It leaves, its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, providing food for all. Under its, it, the wild beast found shade, and its branches, the birds of the air nested, all men ate of it. In the vision I saw while in bed a holy sentinel came down from heaven and cried out, Cut down the tree and lob off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let, let the beasts flee its shade and the birds its branches. But leave in the earth its stump and roots, fettered with iron and bronze, iron and bronze, in the grass of the field. Let him be bathed with the dew of heaven, his, his lot be to eat among beasts the grass of the earth. And so again, Daniel comes and explains to the king. He tells him, here's what's going to happen. You're going, the tree is you. You're going to be cut off from your kingdom for seven years. During seven years, you're going to live with wild beasts and eat their food. And after seven years, your mind will be restored to you. But, here's what I would say. Why don't you fast and why don't you do acts of charity? Why? Because these things can change God's mind. How do we know that? We know that from Nineveh, which Daniel was, was, was familiar with. When, uh, when um, um, jo Jonah was sent to Nineveh, he prophesied that in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed. Then the king sat down in ashes and, 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 and fasted and ordered everybody fast. Everybody fasted and God relented. So you can do that and God will relent. Well, Twelve months later, so God is waiting, gave him a year. The king is walking on the roof of the royal palace and said, Babylon the Great, was it, not, was it not I with my great strength who built it as a royal residence for my splendor and majesty? Okay, didn't get it. Did not get it. While these words were still on the king's lips, a voice spoke from heaven, It has been decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom is taken from you. And that's what happened to him. He was cast out from men, he ate grass like an ox, and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven, until his, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle, and his nails like the claws of a bird. When the period was over, Nebuchadnezzar raised, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven, my reason was restored to me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures to all generations. And there's a blessing on his part. So really God, in essence, has been merciful to him. Where do we see this again in the New Testament? We see it with, with Saul. God had to knock him off his horse, and he sent him for three years, thinking about what has happened, before actually St. Paul began his ministry. And here he's doing it with a pagan king. So remember, as I told you, if we are, if let's say we're successful in promoting the word of God to others, others benefit. It is when we are interiorly failing, when we are interiorly in pain, when we are interiorly suffering, that we grow. You understand how it goes? That's how it works. Christ always works this way. Now, Belshazzar gave a great banquet for thousands of his lords. Who was Belshazzar? Um, 
Let's see. So the way it works is that um, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 43 years. His, his son, named Evil Merodach, succeeded into his throne. And um, his brother-in-law, Neri Glissar, succeeded to his father's throne. In turn came his son, Labo Sordak, or Labashi Marduk. He was followed by Nabonidus and then Belshazzar. Okay? Yet in scripture it says, Nabuchadnezzar's son. So effectively scripture has always a tendency to do this telescopic movement between two men who are along the lineage. They're called one the son of the other, even though there's seven between them. So when you think of the gene genealogy of Matthew, for instance, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, don't interpret it to mean strict genealogy. All right? And if you hear some say, well, that, that doesn't match the histor you know, historical records, that cannot be the case. Well, yeah, because there's the telescopic generations going on here. They do that constantly in Scripture. They're not, as, they're not sticklers as we are to these kinds of details. All right, so here he is, and he is, he throws a feast, and everybody is feasting, and he decides that, you know what, I'm going to use some of the vessels from the temple. Why? What's the point? If you do the calculation, you figure out that he becomes a king 70 years, right about 70 years, after the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem. Okay? What's so special about the 70 years? Well, there are a couple of prophecies, one from Ezekiel, and one from... Jeremiah that say that they will be sent to exile for 70 years and after that they will return and they were aware of it 70 years came and gone nothing happened woohoo let's have a party and let's use the, the vessels from the temple and so he does he uses the vessel from the temple and right in the middle of the celebration a finger writes on the wall and so they call Daniel. What has been written on the wall? And Daniel tell, tell him, 25, this is what he was inscribed, Mene, Tekel, and Paris. These words mean, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighted on the scales and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Alright? Then by order of Belshazzar, they clothed Daniel in purple with a gold color about his neck and proclaimed him third in the, in the government of the kingdom. The same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Same night. In fact, the coup that Darius and Cyrus did against Babylon is unmatched in the history of warfare because Babylon was a city that was seven walls. There were seven walls around Babylon. All right? Every wall, you could have two chariots on it. I mean, it was impregnable. It was impossible to take over. And in the, Med, the Medes and the, and, and the Persians together declaring war on Babylon would be like, I don't know, Macedonia declaring war on the United States. The Babylonians were actually celebrating victory before they went to war. That's how convinced they were that they're going to win. But Darius and Cyrus were, were not, they were, although their army was smaller, they were not stupid. You see, there's a great river that runs through Babylon. So during the night, they dammed the river. And then walked in Babylon. And took it pretty much without shedding any blood. Other than killing the king and a couple other people. That was it. So now, chapter 6, we move to the Medes. Darius the Mede succeeded the kingdom at the age of 62. And he decided to appoint over his entire kingdom 120 satraps to safeguard his interests. And these were accountable to three supervisors, one of whom was Daniel. Alright, so Daniel outshone all the supervisors and satraps because an extraordinary spirit was in him and the king thought of giving him authority over the entire kingdom. Therefore these people came to him and said, alright, um, we all agree that the following proposition ought to be enforced by oral decree. No one is to address any petition to God or man for 30 days except to you, O king. Otherwise he shall be cast into a den of lions. Right? No one can pray to God directly, they just go to you. Very smart. The king, of course, puffed up, said, sure, he signed it. Prayer time came, Daniel is facing Jerusalem, and he's praying, as he ought. They know, they find him, they catch him. And they throw him in a den of lions who have not been fed for some days. The king is really, um, he's saddened by this, but he's forced to go with it, because it's his name. He put the petition. So you see, 
oftentimes we get ourselves in a position where we said something in public and we said we're going to do this and then any other and then we realize we shouldn't do it. If we don't have deep-seated virtues to hold us back and deep-seated prayer life to hold us back, we'll just go with it. We'll just go with it. Because many times we're often very, very happy to let go of our responsibilities. Right? The woman who you put in the garden, she gave me the thing and I ate. I didn't do it. She practically fed me. Spoon fed me the apple. That's what Adam said. And then God said to Eve, well, what did you do this thing? Well, the serpent, he said this and, and, uh, and, and it's him. See how we passed the bucket? Very good at that. We're very, very good at that. We're expert. And understand me. I'm saying we, every single one of us, we are expert. Because unless we have a deep-seated prayer life and we really, really put God first, we're not going to be able to stand and say, take responsibility for our action. And say, yeah, I did it or I did not do it. We're not going to be able to do that. And those who can't even do the side of the cross in the restaurant, don't even begin to hope that you can actually do something like that. Because it's ten times harder. So, you know, they throw them in a, in, a, in a den of lions, and again, Daniel is put to the test, and prays. The following day, he's found to be still alive. And so the king is so overjoyed that he gets him out of there, and he's so overjoyed that he throws the other guy in. You know, those kings, they just don't get it. Right? They just don't get it. And, you know, the apostles, two of them, James and John, Jesus is walking in Samaria, a city refuses to receive him. Should we call on the fire from heaven, burn all of them? And that's why Jesus rebukes them, because they just don't get it. Right? This is not what it is all about. Right? This is not what it is all about. That's different. The fire of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's very different. What you're referring to is cities who refuse to believe on account of the signs he gave them. He's speaking as the judge. Right? We speak as ourselves. We just are in thirst of power. We think power is the key to the kingdom. But it's never power. It's love. Alright? Christ shared with us many, many things. Even he shared with his apostles the ability to judge the tribes of Israel. But he, at the end of the day, he's the only judge. Right? So, in those first six chapters that we've covered right now, you can see how these men were put in a very difficult situation. They lost their homes, they lost their traditions, they were exiles in a different land, who people would laugh at them, no one knew what the temple was about, David or any of that stuff, all that is gone. How do you still live the law when you're away from Jerusalem? In the middle of, of, uh, of people who are effectively defiled. How do you keep yourself... How do you live the faith? And the answer is you live it by faith. You, you, live, you're, you're, you, you stay with God by faith, just as Abraham did before. And in the middle of this tribulation, these people succeeded in making a king see God's glory far more than all the kings of Israel did when they were in power. So in the middle of tribulation and weaknesses, when they were at their weakest, the, the, the power of God shone through them. So oftentimes you look at the church and you see the church kind of teetering and tattering and it's full of, the church is full of problems and this and that and the other and you see the church weak. True, the, the church is weak. The church was always weak. The church will always be weak. Because it isn't about the church to show her power. The church shows God's power. That's what the church does. And that's what you have to pin your hope and your joy. That's where our joy lies. God is in our midst. He will not abandon us. This kingdom will last forever. But it's marvelous in our eyes because He makes it happen. Not us. We're here to enjoy it. And pass it on to others. Enjoy it. Can't be Catholic and be gloomy. You understand that? Can't be Catholic and be gloomy. Gloom is not part of the faith. There must be a deep-seated joy because of our hope. And our hope is Christ. And Christ is in our midst. What more do we need? What more do we need?
I realize this is not necessarily easy for us to see apart from a life of prayer. And that is why I, again, would recommend that if you've not started yet, that as part of this Lenten resolution, you decide that you will be praying every day, unless there are, you know, there are always exceptional days. But you make it part of your prayer, for daily, daily habit to spend 15 minutes with God. 15 minutes. And the 15 minutes are not about quality time. They're not about times where you feel at peace and quiet and happy and wonderful. They're not about any of that. You're going to feel dry. You're going to feel that your mind can't shut up. You're going to feel that your imagination goes all over the place. You're going to feel tired. You might even feel depressed. You might feel that you're wasting your time. You might feel a whole bunch of stuff. But you ought to be like a man who met this woman once and fell in love with her and she told him, I will be back through this same path. And so every day he goes to that point in time, to that place and waits for her unfailingly. So when she comes, he may have demonstrated his love to her. So ought you be with Christ. Don't tell me you love Jesus Christ if you can't wait for Him. It's that simple. That's what prayer is all about. Waiting for Christ. And He will come. He will surely come. As He says in the book of Revelation, I come and I knock at your door. But if you're not there, if you're busy, if, you're not, if there's so much noise that you can even hear Him knocking gently at the door, He will pass. He will go. That's what we ought to do. This is what Lent is all about. So I hope that all these readings in Scripture are steering your heart to greater love and devotion to Christ in His church. There can be no love of Christ apart from the love of church. The two go hand in hand. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.